If you have your Bibles, you open to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. I typically have more sermons than I can possibly preach bouncing around in my head at any given time. Yesterday, Tiffany said to me, what are you going to preach tomorrow? And I said, I don't know. (laughs) And she said, how about the righteous shall live by faith? I said, well, that's simple enough. And that was a message I needed to hear. And so Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17, let's read it together. For I not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also the Greek for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written the righteous shall live by faith. God, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for the simplicity of the good news about Jesus. As complex and timeless as it is, historic and deeply spiritual, at its central point, it is simple enough for a child to understand and to receive by faith. God, I pray this morning that you would open eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us minds to understand and and hearts to believe. God, I pray that the seed of your word would find good soil in our hearts as we give our attention to the reading and preaching of your word. Holy Spirit, I just invite you into my own heart, my mind, my words, and pray that uh, you would use me to communicate your words to your people. We're hungry, we wanna hear from you. Speak to us now. In Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Um, I told a lie this week, which maybe some of you are like, that. Ah, no big deal. And I don't want to go into the details of it, but it was one of those lies where like, let's say you have like a half a dozen do- uh, donuts and uh, the kids eat most of them and there's like one left. And then, you know, your wife's going to want that donut and you don't really eat donuts anyway. And so you leave it for her and then, Later, you're cooking dinner and you see the donut there. And so you start to eat the donut. And while you're eating the donut, you think, oh, she would really want to eat this donut. And then you eat most of the donut. And then you think, she would really want this donut. It's a little stale. It's been sitting out all day. And so then you throw the last little bit of the donut in the trash can. And then later she says, hey, would you give me that donut? And the first thing you say is, I threw it away. It was a lie kind of like that. The details have been changed to protect the guilty. And so for some of you, you might think that's like a very silly, self-protective lie. Maybe you've told lots of lies like that this week. Maybe some of you are the type that you just don't ever tell lies at all and you're judging me from your seat. I don't know. But for me, uh, telling the truth is really, 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 really important for two reasons. Uh, The first is that God's called me to be a herald of the truth and therefore everything I say matters. Do you know that? Uh, there, are some, there are some vocations where the truth really is very flexible. Politics comes to mind. <laughs> Journalism comes to mind. There are several others. Uh, but for a preacher of good news, the truth really matters. 
The second reason is that I kind of grew up in a somewhat oppressive religious environment where um, the go-to behavior modification for children was corporal punishment and physical spanking. And so I learned to be flexible with the truth to avoid punishment. Any of you guys ever, ever done that? And it works really well when you're seven, um, but at 27, it gets you into trouble. And at 37, it's just ugly. You know what I'm saying? And so about 10 years ago, the Lord used a really painful set of circumstances to like show me ways in which I was being deceitful, not necessarily telling overt lies, but being deceitful to project myself as a little better than I actually was and to avoid the consequences of mistakes that I made. And so about 10 years ago, this is something that God really started to work in my life. And I I made a fierce commitment to um, kind of absolute honesty. Now, Tiffany, my wife, if you know her at all, she's one of those people that like, she should have been a judge or like a a prosecutor or something because like she doesn't lie even when she ought to. She's one of those people. You know, some of those people, don't ask those people how you look. That's all I'm going to say to you, right? She's going to give you the truth 100% of the time. And some, she has to like work to like say it in a way that doesn't just hurt your feelings. And so God really matched the two of us well right there. And um, so our relationship oftentimes has its most kind of abrasion and, and difficulty when the truth is on the table. And so this is something that really is important to me and to building trust with my wife, who's the person I care about the most and I'd like to live with the longest. And so it was kind of a big deal. And I kept asking myself like, that was such a dumb thing to lie about. Why would you do that? And specifically, why would you lie about something like that when you work so hard to be honest all the time, which I do. I take, it's, a daily, it's a daily commitment for me to make sure I'm being honest about everything with everyone. And I wanna be that kind of person for the rest of my life. And so I was really kind of shocked at myself and really had a, a, a rough day, evening, following day. Uh, and so I go back to a little tool that I developed about 10 years ago where I went through the entire Bible and I pulled out every passage that had anything to do with lies, deceit, false witness, anything like that at all. And there's a lot of them. And I started kind of reading through them and asking God to help me with the why. And one of the stories that stuck out to me was uh, in my notes was the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Do you guys know this story? You Bible nerds who are here. uh, I'll tell you if you don't, don't feel bad if you don't know the story. It's in Acts chapter four and five. Um, And the book of Acts is just before Romans, which is the book we read. But Acts is kind of like Luke's gospel sequel. And it tells the story of what Jesus continued to do at the hands of the apostles and by the spirit of God, as the church was founded and the good news about Jesus spread all over the Roman empire. And so that's what the book of Acts is about. And it opens up with uh, Jesus still on the earth in resurrection form, communicating with the disciples, doing all kinds of miracles, proving himself to be risen, um, teaching and preparing his disciples for his ascension. It records his ascension into heaven and his command for them to stay in the city and to not do anything until the power of the Holy Spirit comes. And then we get the day of Pentecost in chapter two. Chapter two kind of ends with this passage, which I call the baby picture of the church. You guys probably know it, Acts 2, 42 to 47. If you've been around church any length of time, you've heard sermons. Um, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. So we have this willing kind of communism community thing happening. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. 
And day by day, every day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. So we have kind of like the first revival. The church has 3000 souls added to it. Everybody's going to church every day, selling off their stuff, sharing with everyone. It's kind of this utopian moment uh, in the New Testament church. And some of, sometimes you'll hear preachers talk about like, if we can just do these five things that are in this passage, then we can get back to this kind of utopian era and the church can do what it's supposed to do and everything will be wonderful and it'll usher in revival. And um, <clears throat> that's not gonna happen. By the way, and part of the reason we know that is because of the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And Luke chooses to include this story to make some very serious points about the human condition and problem and the actual role of the Holy Spirit and the gospel in the world, and also to adjust some of our expectations. And so after this, there's a lame beggar that's healed publicly and Peter has a chance to preach. And then John and Peter are put in prison and apprehended and they're questioned and released. And then the disciples continue to pray for boldness. And then in Acts chapter four and verse 32, the story uh, kind of continues into the Ananias story. It says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, hearkening back to chapter two. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him were his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. Great time to do a building program, I'll tell you that. <laughs> and it was distributed to each as any had need. So this is the setting. And then look at verse 36. Thus, Joseph, a guy named Joe, who was also called by the apostles, so this is his nickname, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. A Levite and a native of Cyprus, these details matter later, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet in this public act of generosity. Look at five, verse one. But, dun, 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 you ready? A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet, mimicking what Barnabas had just done. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? And I was asking the same question of my own heart. You have lied not to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. You ever been in a church where people get uh, slain by the spirit? This is the original right here. <laughs> and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up, carried him out and buried him. It actually gets worse than this though. At an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. 
But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. You ever read the Bible and think, what is going on there? God's just killing people for being mostly generous. I mean, let it sink in for a second. Ananias literally drops dead and all of the details are not filled in. And the looming question is why? Why? We don't know the details. I've heard a lot of preachers fill in the details over the years. Peter knew the Holy Spirit was revealing to him all the details. He may have just had the Zillow app, you know? He may have been like, seriously? You know? I was just looking at that piece of property and it was for sale for like nearly twice that. I don't know what he was, how he had come to the conclusion, but he knows what's going on somehow, spiritually or naturally. And he looks at Ananias and he says, what are you, what are you doing? Like, you didn't, you didn't have to do this. This is your stuff. Now that blows the whole uh, communism thing out of the water. I hear a lot of Christians try to like promote socialism or communism as being a Christian origin, as though no one should have any property rights and everybody should have all their stuff put in the middle. Uh, there's a big difference between communism and willing communalism. Do you realize that? When everybody takes your money and puts it in a common pot, that's called theft, isn't it? And of course, it's the Bible's 10 commandments that give us the underpinning for property rights as there is a prohibition against theft, right? Don't covet what's not yours and don't take what's not yours. And so Peter here is making the argument clear. He's saying, you did not have to sell this just because everyone was doing it. If all of your friends jumped off of a cliff, would you jump off of a cliff? You did not have to do this. And when you did it, you could have decided to give however much you wanted, any percentage of it at all, and it would have been a fine offering. And yet you pretended to give it all. Why? 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 And why do we tell little lies? And why do we manipulate and try to control situations in other areas? And why is it that we allow fear to dictate our decisions? And why is it that even in our best intentions, in our genuine relationship with God in which we've put our trust in him, does our life not always match up to the calling to which we have been called? Why? Well, that was the operative question for me. And I wonder if I could find an answer in this passage. Certainly social pressure was a factor. Everybody who owned land and houses was selling them and bringing all the money to the apostles. Can you imagine being the last one, the holdout? Everyone's kind of looking around me like, so you still got that little lot over there in Ormond Beach? Still sitting on that, are you? What's the deal? A little social pressure. I think there's also a possibility that there was a desire for social praise. Notice that this story is preceded by the inclusion about the details about Barnabas. Now, Barnabas is a central figure in the book of Acts, and so he's being introduced here. But notice that his name was Joe. Just a guy named Joe. But he got a nickname, Son of Encouragement. And this is a kind of a Jewish way of talking about someone who has a gift or a skill. When you're like your father in some meaningful way, this is a way of saying that you have some skill. And so here's a guy whose skill is communicating, encouraging, maybe proclaiming or prophesying. And so he, he's notable 
among the apostles and he is encouraged publicly and given a name because of his, of his activities. And then he who gets all this acclaim does this thing publicly and I'm sure there was all kinds of accolades. And so here we find Ananias and Sapphira looking at this strange time to be born and to be alive when everybody's living off of the common pot and everyone's just cashing all their stuff and saying, hey, this whole Jesus thing, we're all in for it. And we don't care about this earth anymore, this world anymore. We're going in for the kingdom of heaven and that's the direction we're all going. And so what useless uh, stuff do we have that we can contribute so that everybody's taken care of and we're all in this together. And there was an eternal kind of mindset and everybody's functioning together and seems like really kind of utopian setting, doesn't it? And so Barnabas is getting public praise and I would imagine that Ananias and Sapphira with a little bit of pressure and a desire for praise um, made this action. But I, I, I kind of relate to Ananias and Sapphira too because I think they have a healthy distrust of other people. It's, it's easy to um, receive benevolence when you have nothing. It's different to help people with everything you have and put yourself in the position of being just as needy as them, isn't it? All the people who are really excited about social programs and uh, communism as an ideal usually have nothing to contribute. You know what I'm saying? The problem with communism is that at some point you run out of other people's money. And yet when you have something, there's an inherent self-protection there, isn't it? You gotta look out for yourself and for your future and what if bad things happen? And so if you have nothing or very little and you come in and say, I'm putting it all in and I'm expecting everybody else's resources to take care of me, that's a much different situation than having a lot and putting it out there and then subjecting yourself to the care and concern of others. And so with this distrust in people, it's easy to understand why they would wanna hold some of this money back. I think they're probably more pessimistic people too, not the optimistic type. And so their vision of the future may not have been as utopian as everybody else's. I mean, here's the Christian church seeing these miracles and signs and wonders, and they're imagining that Jesus is gonna come back any minute to set up his rule and reign on the earth, and that Israel is gonna be the top of its game, and the world's gonna be filled with the fruit of God's righteousness. And I wonder if Ananias and Sapphira were looking in the Bible and going, I don't know that this is gonna go down the way that you think. And I think they would have been right. Can I get amen? Maybe you're one of those types that has a kind of dystopian vision of the future. Well, certainly these are reasons why they would have held back. But ultimately, the reason we find is a distinct distrust in God himself. The fact that they thought that they could be dishonest before God says that they don't really think he's quite as real and powerful as he says he is and as everybody else believes. So the story isn't placed in the book of Acts to answer the question why, but to provoke our asking the same question of ourselves. And really the point, which we see twice repeated in both verse 11 of chapter five and in verse five of chapter five, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. And so my question goes from why did I lie to what am I afraid of? What am I really afraid of? What am I trying to control with my version of the truth? Maybe it's not deception for you. Maybe it's 
anger, manipulation, holding out on money, power, whatever it is that puts you back in control, puts you in the driver's seat, what is it that you are afraid of that's keeping you from completely relinquishing your trust to God? Proverbs 14, 27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. What was the effect of God pulling Ananias and Sapphira? Great fear came upon everyone. I also just have to say, I encounter a lot of people who are very adamant about the church being exactly like it was in the beginning. And if it doesn't have all of the pieces that we see in Acts and don't believe that this is the way it should always be, then they don't have anything to do with it. And I say, well, what about the public death? Do you want to come to a church where you might be killed? You want to check your uh, one life pledge real quick and see where you're at before we go all the way back to the book of Acts? You see, we're in a unique period of time where God was interacting with the disciples and with his people because he was putting on display for all the nations the power and majesty and reality of God. And so Ananias and Sapphira lost their lives, but ultimately their deaths gave glory to God because fear came across all people. And the fear of the Lord actually leads to life. And so you can read Proverbs 14, 27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death, or you could agree with Paul's quotation of Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. How many of you guys want to live? I want to live. And so let's just take a few minutes to consider the component parts of this phrase as we ask ourselves the question, why do I do the things I do? And what am I so afraid of? The righteous shall live by faith. Somebody say the righteous the righteous. It's easy for us to come to this passage and immediately think that there's kind of two classifications of people, the righteous and the unrighteous. And in fact, lying is a great way to try to make yourself appear to be in the former, isn't it? The righteous and the unrighteous, the good people and the bad people. And mostly it's the kind of good people and the really bad people, if we get down to it. Who are the righteous that the scriptures speak of anyway? In the Hebrew, it's yeshar. In Greek, it's dikaiosune, the just the righteous, the upright, those of a straight path. It does speak to moral behavior and people who do things in line with the revealed will of God. But here and throughout the New Testament, we find that the righteous is not an indication of all of the right decisions you made that put you into the category of being righteous, but rather the one thing that brings you into the category of righteous is in fact your faith. This is what all the monotheistic religions should believe because Abraham, the founding father, was justified by his faith in God. He believed God and it was counted unto him as righteousness. Read the Abraham story. Did he do a lot of great things? Yes. Did he screw up royally? Yes. I'm talking bigger than lying about donuts. You see, what brings us into this category of righteousness is our faith. In fact, you could change the sentence structure to the one who by faith is righteous shall live. You know, there's no punctuation in Hebrew and Greek. In Hebrew, there's no vowels. So you need context. And also you need not word order, but the relationship of these words to each other to understand what they're even meaning. It's really important because in English, we have punctuation that helps us understand the words we're reading. Do you guys know this? Do you guys have any English teachers in the room? Let me make my point. Here's a couple ways that punctuation matters. Have you ever seen this one? Um, Let's eat, grandma. And I just take that comma out and 
You're, you're going full cannibal right now. Punctuation matters, does it not? How about this one? Ladies are like this one. A woman without her man is nothing. A woman without her man is nothing. You see? Just a couple of little dots on the page. Things change quickly. I like this one too. I want to thank my parents, Mary and God. This is why that Oxford comma really does matter. This could only be true of Jesus, whose parents were marrying God. However, for others, I want to thank my parents, Mary and God. Do you see why that comma matters right there? Changes the, the structure. Uh, even hyphens matter. How about this one? Would you rather have uh, $25 bills or $25 bills? Simple math. Yeah. Take the hundred bucks. You see, Punctuation matters and how this lands matters. But we come to the scriptures oftentimes with the religious spirit. We want to do enough right things to be on God's good side, to be on other people's good side. We want to be in the category of the righteous. But the problem is we know that we are not, no matter how hard we try. The reality is, is that the righteous shall live by faith. It is our faith in God that counts us as righteous and then begins the transformation on the inside of us becoming the righteousness of God. Do you realize it comes to us as a gift of God's grace because of our faith. The one who by faith is righteous shall in fact live. This is clearly the argumentation of Romans. This is the thesis statement of Romans and Paul continues his argument in Romans 3, 19 to 26. These are familiar verses. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God because no one is just. For the, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified, declared to be in the right by his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. God says, don't lie. And that's when you find out the thing I just said being untrue is a sin. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law by your works in keeping with what is good all the time, every time. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. Do you see where the righteous comes from? For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or a substitution by his blood to be what? Somebody say it, received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so we come to God with all of our problems and we take him at his word and by our faith in him, he calls us the righteous. And if you wanna live, this is where you have to start. It's God's gift of grace to be received by faith, which brings us to the second part of this Yoda sentence. The righteous by faith shall live. Look at number two, by faith. What is faith exactly? What is faith? Some of us have got faith cornered as this mental ascent. I talk to people all the time who used to believe in the Bible and used to believe in God and enough doubts crept in and enough attacks on the veracity of scripture or the historicity of Jesus that they changed their mind and they no longer believe. Do you ever encounter anybody like that? Heard anybody share this way? I have plenty of times. But that's not what faith is. You see, faith in both the Hebrew and in the Greek is a relational term. 
And we even use it in terms of marriage, faithfulness, fidelity, trust. Faith is not a mental assent to facts, although it certainly includes that. Faith is when you join yourself to another person and decide to believe in what they say about themselves and to be a faithful person in that relationship. Do you know it? And so the righteous, those who are made righteous by God by taking him at his word and entering into a relationship by faith, not only brings us into a relationship with God, but keeps us in our relationship with God. And this is why it's important that our faith be real, be real, because this subtle thing can happen. And this is what I feel like happened to me. I worked so hard to be honest that I shifted my faith from God and his transformative work into all of my efforts to tell the truth every day. You know where there's no power to be found? Right here. I stopped walking in faith in this particular area. I was so shocked. How could I have done this? Well, who are you looking to? What was the source of your righteousness? What was the power for your transformation? And how quickly we can just move our faith into the wrong place. And this is what happens. And so we end up with a what if faith and not an even if faith. Think about this for a second. What if he leaves me? What if the job falls through? What if it's cancer? What if the economy? What if the housing market? What if the kid doesn't come back? What if, what if, what if, what if? And we play out all the terrible scenarios and all we're left with is to grasp for control. Do you see it? Sound familiar? Sound like your conversation on the way to church this morning? But the faith that encounters the living God who is powerful and eternal and good and kind and merciful and just and righteous and never fails and never has changed. This is the God who we can encounter and the faith we have in him leads us to say, even if she leaves me, even if the market crashes, even if I lose the job, even if my kids don't believe, even if it's cancer, my God will. Why? Because of who he is. That's the faith. That's the faith. That's the faith, and the righteous shall live by that faith. You see, it's the, it's the faith that leads you to become the righteous that ultimately puts you on the path towards eternal life and gifts it to you. But it's also that faith that keeps you as the righteous, trusting in the one whom can carry you through all things. There's a lot of, there's a lot of cheap theology that puts all the emphasis on your faith. If you just believe hard enough, long enough, strong enough, then it'll all come out to work for you. But that's not the faith of the Bible. The faith of the Bible is no matter what, even if I trust you. Do you realize that? And so life can be hard and filled with obstacles, but ultimately this type of faith transforms your existence and transforms even death. You can't outrun death, brothers and sisters. No faith is strong enough, but the faith in the Son of God will lead you through death. Do you realize that? You can't outrun it, but you can outlive it. The righteous by faith shall live. And I'll close here. Shall, in fact, live. Do you know that God wants to gift to you eternal life? Maybe you're here this morning and you haven't understood this relational component of faith. Maybe you thought, I can't swallow all the pills and there's too many discrepancies and I have too many questions and too many doubts. The reality is God doesn't care about your doubts and he's happy to work them out with you. You see, our faith is a faith in search of understanding. And so we never stop asking questions and we never stop encountering our doubts. The question is, will your doubts drive you from God or will they drive you to him? 
because he wants to gift you eternal life, something that will sustain you forever. But it also begins to describe to you what your daily life shall look like. John 3, 16. What is, what's God's motive here? God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Eternal life. It's a gift. And this is eternal life, Jesus prays, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. When I tried to protect myself this week, I was trying to live a life I wanted for myself, but it's not the life that God wants to give me. And the life he wants to give me is so far superior. The question is, what do I fear? What am I afraid of? Why would I do that? The fear of the Lord is the fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Listen, I don't know what you're facing or what your questions are, but I do know that any place you turn aside from turning to God himself, who has made himself known in Jesus, ultimately leads to death. Every single time. And some of us are dying a little bit every single day because we continue to turn away from him. And so whether you are brand new to Christianity, maybe you've never heard any of this before, the invitation is to come. The invitation is to receive by faith the gift of what God wants to give you, put your trust in him and to walk with him every day. Do you know this? This is the gift. This is the offer. This is the gospel of which I am not ashamed. But it's also the gift of God to keep coming back when you screw up, when you find yourself afraid, when you're asking the why question, when you realize your faith subtly shifted from who he is to who I swear I'm gonna be from now on. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand, even your best attentions. Now my hope is that you come to God in reality and honesty and in a relationship and don't put him to the test. He is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. The same God who reached out to consume Nadab and Abihu with their strange fire in the temple who took God's presence and his calling to temple ministry lightly. The same God who struck down Uzzah when he reached to steady the Ark of the Covenant. The same God who is a consuming fire and will destroy everything who is not joined with him by faith is the God whose mercy triumphs over judgment and who calls all people to repentance. Come to me, he says, trust in me, walk with me and watch what I can do, even if, amen. God, I thank you for every person in my hearing. Lord, I thank you for the ministry of your Holy Spirit within our hearts that brings your word alive, that speaks directly to our situation. God, I thank you that not all of us are preoccupied with a lie covering the last donut. God, but all of us are facing a why. All of us are facing a what am I afraid of? All of us are facing destructive behaviors that seek to maintain control and to give us life. But you are the only giver of life. You are the good God, the kind God, the tender, never-changing, powerful, omniscient one. 
and your invitation is the same to all of us to come. And Lord, I pray for every person in my hearing. Lord, especially those who have not put their trust in you, Lord, that they would right now in this moment say yes to you. To say, yes, God, I am yours. I believe what you say to be true. And I don't have all the answers, but I'm running to you and not away from you. God, I pray for those of us who have subtly shifted. God, that you would lead us and show us where we need to be. And Lord, I pray that every single one of us would actively lift our eyes from ourselves, put our trust in you, that the righteous by faith shall live. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Amen. Would you stand with me? And I just want to invite you, if you want to encounter God, if you want to bring something to him, if you want to get something from him, step out of your seat, come forward, have a private interaction with God and don't leave here with anything that stands against you.